How about if I just start at the beginning? <laughs> you could you could be honest. Because <laughs> you know what? They have the sweat equity that went into that memory that they're making with their friends and family. And that's what's important with us, and that's what the I Am Real World's about. Well, that's a great question. You know, one of the best things about a spring food plot is you get a second chance if it fails. Chasing Giants with Don Higgins, brought to you by buyafarm.com, your source for farm, recreational properties, rural homes, and more. By tapping into Don's years of experience, dedication, and commitment, Chasing Giants focuses on the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetails. Now, here is Don and co-host Terry Peer. Well, welcome to Chasing Giants, brought to you by Biofarm.com, episode 66. Don Higgins, how are we doing on May 23rd? I'm doing good. Um, better than you are, Terry. I know uh, you got a surgery coming up, and uh, you've been in a lot of pain lately. So You know, it's odd that uh, a week ago this weekend is when uh, we had that mishap with a tractor, and I jumped off and blew my knee and had to have knee reconstruction in July of last year. And uh, through the rehab of that, um, had some other complications, and I go under the knife on June first on my back now, so it's been a it's been an ordeal. Yeah, the reason I brought it up is just to ask our listeners to keep you in their prayers. Um, you know, I offered uh, not to even do this podcast this evening because uh, I know you're in a lot of pain, and you said uh, let's do it. And uh, your commitment to this. Uh, you know, I know a lot of the listeners appreciate it, so I'm just asking them to lift you up in prayer and uh, get you through this surgery and get you healed up. Yeah, I appreciate that and appreciate the support. I haven't talked a whole lot about it, but uh, it's a it's a pretty minor minor procedure. Um, I'm going to be shut down from lifting and twisting for uh, for a month and a half or two, but I'll be up walking immediately. So um, I'm pretty much. Uh, stricken to the floor right now to to keep uh, the pain from shooting down my leg. But I, I'll be honest with you, the people that's dealt with back pain and sciatica, um, I, I feel for you. I mean, it's it's been uh, life-changing here about the last three months navigating this. But uh, we're at the last resort where they're going to do a little procedure here a week from Tuesday. So uh, we'll, we'll get back and my knee's doing really good if anybody's curious about that so <laughs> if it's the one thing it's well, not another but i do want to take a second and uh you know we got um i had my food plots planted today i had a couple of buddies step in and know the situation and i know they're listening to the this podcast right now so i had two different friends that came in and helped me work ground and and uh, put my soybean plots in and I, ju- I just it means a lot to have good friends and i know you and and kyle are, are going to be working kyle Harmon from team radical is going to be working on the the property up in illinois for me and it, it just means a lot that when you're down you get got people to depend on yeah we'll get it taken care of uh here on your lease property and I saw the uh, picture of Patrick Simpson on that big old international tractor. I don't know if it's a 1056 or what it is, but uh, 
Uh, looks like he was going to town getting your plots done. Yeah, if anybody knows Patrick Simpson, it's a 14 series. Um, he does he does everything fast. It doesn't no matter what it is, and he's got a really big tractor that's fully rebuilt and restored. And he is he hammers down on that. It was you could see the dust cloud from two miles away today. It was it was pretty funny. Well, it was great of him to get it in for you. So uh, yeah, we appreciate. I don't know it. what you guys got coming this week. We got a little rain towards the end of the week, so hopefully you get a shower on it. Yeah, we're really dry here, and I know that's been the exact opposite. We haven't had rain here for a while, and, I mean, it's it's dry, dry here. So why don't you uh, walk us through a little bit what you've been going through up there in Illinois? Well, you know, we recorded the podcast a week ago. I just got my uh, plots planted and uh, thought I was going to get to put the, the planter away for the spring. And Well, then on Monday and Tuesday of this week, we got five and a half inches of rain. Um, my corn plot is actually along a creek and that creek came out of its banks uh, with all that rain and washed away, um, basically my seed, my fertilizer and everything else on the wow. corn plot. So I'm back to starting over there and it's just now getting dry enough where I can do it. So in the next day or two, uh, I'm going to replant that and, and hopefully have better luck the second time. Yeah. I mean, we can still do everything right. And Mother Nature has different plans on it. So, um, you know, um, whether it's dry or whether it's wet or whether it's perfect. And, and sometimes we've even lost our entire spring plot and had to rely on fall plots. But um, still got to plug away and try, though, right? Yeah, for sure. The bad thing about this plot is uh, yeah, it's not all on lower ground. So some of it's up on higher ground. But, uh, you know, I, I've already applied the herbicide. Um for corn and uh, that includes a pre-emergent or residual and i'm not sure that if this corn is a failure how much of that residual might affect a fall planted plot you mm -hmm. know such as deadly dozen or whatever sure. so we i'm gonna have to do whatever i can to get this corn in yeah we talked about that last week a little bit between the residual and a contact so this is a specialized chemical that you spray and with your with your setup you actually have the tank on the front of your tractor and you go through and you spray and it keeps everything else other than corn from germinating um so how much of that washed away and how long that takes before maybe you uh if if we if we don't get corn there how long that's going to last to maybe get a fall plot for as a backup plan will be interesting as you navigate it. Yeah. And you know, you don't know what the weather is going to do. So I could get another flood right after I plant this or the rain may shut off and may get a drought the rest of the summer. So all you can do is do things right and then leave it in mother nature's hands. But regardless, I think you have, uh, you also have beans that are, that are up though, that look good, right? How oh, my beans look fantastic. Uh, you know, I use that Genesis drill. Um, I no-tilled into some corn stalks where my corn plot was last year. They look fantastic. There's not a single weed out there. I think I mentioned that I'm trying a new residual herbicide on those soybeans. It's supposed to be really good on uh, water hemp, mm -hmm. but uh, it's actually a combination of three different chemicals. Uh, the name of the product is called Intimidator. So if anybody wants to check it out, you know, online, you can do a search for Intimidator Residual Herbicide for Soybeans to learn more about it. But so far, I'm impressed because, I mean, I've got a great crop of soybeans coming on and there's not a weed out there. 
And then I also, um, I posted a video online uh, when I was planting those soybeans. It's been a couple weeks ago now uh, where I was spraying um, through some deadly dozen. Basically, it was the rye uh, more than anything that had survived from the deadly dozen through the winter mm-hmm. and came back and there was a good stand of it in the spring. So I was spraying that rye at the same time I was no-tilling the beans on the back. And uh, that plot also looks fantastic. Got a great stand of soybeans there. So my soybeans are doing good. If I can just get this corn to come along. Um, but that was just th- that was just a product of where it was at, though, right? Because the the creek came up because of five and a half inches of rain and just washed it out, or was there something else in play there? No, that was it. If these crops had been reversed, then my soybeans, where the corn is, then it would have got wiped out too. So I got you. It's just uh, just the luck of the draw. All right. Well, speaking, I got a couple of questions I want to run by you before we move on to some exciting news about Mel. You had him officially scored, but before we move on to that, I, I, we've we've gotten a quite a few questions as it relates to how much product to plant. And I know uh, I know a lot of people kind of come from the mentality that more is better. And in some cases, planting more is a strategic option for food plot seed, but in other situations, it, it actually hurts the performance of it a little bit. And we've had people call in or email in or send social medias, and I want to talk a little bit about you and, and let you pick pick your brain about what products under certain conditions, say like soybeans, can you plant them a little thick? And then other products, does it hurt you if you plant thick? So if it's all right, we'll just kind of go through them. Um, I know soybeans, I'm going to take the, the a little bit away from you. Soybeans doesn't matter if you plant those a little thick. What are some reasons why we would plant soybeans a little bit thicker than normal than a 50-pound bag per acre? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one would be browse pressure if you've got a lot of uh, – you know, deer browse pressure, or believe it or not, on my farm, I got pheasant browse pressure. And people have probably never heard of that before, and I never either, but I've experienced it. Uh, Mine when those would be beans turkeys. Just, yeah, <laughs> Same thing. When those beans are just popping out of the ground, you go out to one of my plots, and I got so many pheasants on my farm that it looks like a flock of chickens walking around in my bean plot picking up, pecking at those beans as they're coming out of the ground. But, uh, you know, in those in a situation like that where you got browse pressure from something, then uh, that that's a situation where you'd probably want to plant, uh, you know, a little bit more seed. So um, when you look when you look at beans coming up, say say you use your Genesis drill, and it, it it's going to be very precise in how many seeds it puts out. So let's say we take a cubic or a square yard, or maybe a hula hoop, and you have that compared to somebody who just puts say a, a bag and a half per acre or maybe even two bags per acre of soybeans what does that plant do as it's competing if it's if it's seeds that are spaced out more versus seeds that are very concentrated what's that bean plant doing in either case well a uh, bean has a soybean has the ability to utilize the space it's given so if it's if it's crowded you know your your yield is going to be roughly the same um, but each plant is going to be a little bit smaller. Um, if the planting is a little bit light and the plants have more space, then they're going to uh, branch out. And that's when you get the plants with hundreds of pods on them and 
Um, it's all about the space that they're given, and the soybean will utilize that space. And so it's like a bush you know, bean another, kind of in your garden. If you space them out, they'll actually stalk out and leaf out with a lot of limbs or shoots that come out of it that have a whole lot more. If you put all of them right. too close, you'll just have a lot of plants with fewer beans on it. But in that same space, you're probably going to have the same amount. Pretty close, yeah. Um, yeah. With a little heavier population, you, you may get a few more, um, a little higher yield, but not, not all that much. But a reason a farmer wouldn't do that is because he's wasting the seed. <laughs> Yeah, he right. wants he wants to minimize the input cost. What what you would use this method for for planting soybeans is if you had heavy browse with deer or other animals that are coming in and and po- po- uh, plucking them out, right? Well, that that leads to the the other reason why you might plant soybeans a little bit heavier, and that's your planting method. You know, a farmer's got um, specialized equipment that you know they've they've got that down to a science you know evenly and uh you go to do something like broadcasting soybeans you can get a great crop broadcasting soybeans but at different depths and you're gonna just need to put a little more seed out there yeah and and a lot of times when people are broadcasting beans they're disking them in or dragging them in or cultipacking them in and you can't control that depth, and you might have uh, some issues with poor germ there because of controlling that seed depth. So, so for example, today I had three bags put on just a little bit over two acres, like 2.1 acres. So we seeded heavy, but we broadcasted, knowing that's what. If I had a you know access to a drill or a fancy planter, then you know I could have saved that input cost in the food plot. So, so it's a kind of a balance of what you have access to and hedging your bet now. With corn, it's it's exact opposite. If we get the population too high on it, what happens? Well, you just reduce the yield. Um, you, you can actually get it so thick where it don't even produce them here. Because um, of the competition between the stalks to each other? Or? Right. Yeah. Yeah, each plant needs space to, to fully mature and uh, to produce at its maximum level. So that's why spacing and, and, you know, soybeans, even farmers, they're planting them from anywhere from seven and a half inch rows with a drill all the way up to uh, some guys are still using 36 inch rows. Right. Uh, the, the most common is either 30 or 15 inch rows, but there's a wide variance. But when it comes to corn, you know, most farmers today are planting corn on 30 inch rows. Right. Occasionally you might get somebody on 24 inch rows or something like that, but. That corn plant needs space to to really yield. All right, so let's talk about a couple other products. Clover, can you uh, you know can you put extra clover down and, and hurt anything? No, clover is one of those that uh, actually a little more is is good. Um, just helps ensure that you get a good stand. And you know, in fact, real world is when they sell we sell a one acre bag. It's ten pounds of of seed, whereas most companies are giving you eight pounds for an acre. And the reason we give you a couple extra pounds is we want to make sure that you got a good stand. Yep. So uh, you, you could put about as much clover seed out there as you want. And it's not going to make that much difference. All right. And then the last one that's kind of tee up for you is another bad example of a situation where we could overseed. And that's going to be a spring plot like Upland Game Blend or a fall plot like Deadly Dozen. Why, why would you not want to overseed those blends? Well, it's just the, 
the plant species, you know, for example, uh, uh, the upland game land has sunflowers in it. They need space to mature. Um, the, the deadly dozen has the, the turnips and radish sugar beets. Those all need space, um, to mature. So you just start, you get getting those too thick or seeded too heavy and you just limit the plant's ability to fully mature and develop. Yep. So it's, it's just a kind of, there's no real rule of thumb across the board, but there is inside of different type plants ways that you can plan a little bit extra as a insurance policy basically. And then there's other plants or varieties or blends like deadly dozen that you're probably better off planting thin instead of heavy. So right. as you're making your plans for uh, seeding this year, just take that into consideration. So um, I hope that helps people. We got, I, I can't tell you how many people were asking me about application rates today. So, or this last week. So I wanted to go over that a little bit. So tell us a little bit about the story with Mel getting officially scored. Walk us through that. I saw a picture with you and Joe Johnson and Al Foster together. So uh, what was going on there? Well, I've been wanting to get him officially scored uh, just because I thought he would, uh, you know, be one of the biggest typicals killed by archery in Illinois. Um, but I've been so busy all winter with consulting and things that I just hadn't got around to it yet. Um, my good friend Tim Walmsley and Jim Barry um, are official measures, so I, I got a hold of Tim and um, set up a time Wednesday and Wednesday morning, and Al and Joe and I took uh, Mel over to be scored, and um, I was pretty happy with how it ended up. Um, you know, I'd been throwing out the score, calling him 220 inch inches, and then there's a few people that, that were really uh, interested in the net typical score, and I'd come up with around 196 inches, so that's the kind of the scores I threw out, 220 gross, and, and uh, 196 net, and I was hoping that he would at least be close to those numbers. I didn't want it to look like, you know, that I'd stretch the tape or, or anything, so uh, it turned out that his gross typical frame was – 213 inches even and then he had eight and an eighth of an inch um of non-typical points two points that total eight and eighth inches so when you added that to the 213 you come up with uh, 221 and an eighth so you're pretty, just a you're bit pretty close yeah well i'm glad it, w- it worked out this way instead of being under 220 right. um but then the net typical score ended up being uh 197 and three eighths so uh i was safe there too and that's what uh, i was really happy about that it didn't look like i was misleading anyone or or stretching the tape at all um so when it was all said and done he ends up being the second biggest archery kill ever in illinois uh for typical wow uh, second only to mel johnson's world record which is where he got his name exactly (laughs) and uh then, uh, based on the Pope and Young um, website, uh, it lists the top 10 typicals uh, on one page of the Pope and Young website. According to that, he would rank uh, number six all time in the world among archery kill typicals. So, uh, I didn't realize that he was going to quite do that. I-, I knew he would be, you know, up there 
fairly close to the top, but I did not expect him to be in the top 10 all time. And I did not expect him to be number two in the state of Illinois. So it's pleasantly uh, surprised. There's, there's two comments I have for this and, and you can comment on either one or neither one. It doesn't matter. But uh, the first one I'll say is until you've seen Mel in person, there is, He's just one of those bucks that you can't get a picture of that does justice to the buck in every direction. Wouldn't you say? I mean, Smokey, Smokey's frame and the way everything was kind of laid out, it's actually the, if you look at the, the logo of our podcast, that's Smokey's, uh, you know, silhouette. His frame is just, it's wide, it's big, and you can see everything. Mel's not that case. So I know a lot of people... You know, the social media experts that can score deer off of one picture from 60 yards away, um, you know, gave you a little crap on it. But there, there's, in, in all honesty, there is no, <laughs> there's no way to get an angle that does that bug justice. And that's exactly what Tim Walmsley and Jim Barry said that they were scoring it, that uh, they, they said right out of the gate, pictures don't do this buck justice. They said that before they even came up with the score just seeing it in person they said there's no picture that's done that buck justice so it it goes back to when when you have intel or knowledge of a deer that you watch whether it's knowing mel was a yearling on trail camera pictures and and people just go absolute bonkers uh on social media about what you say based on one pictures one picture <laughs> there's so much other data that goes in behind anything that you say and it just still is just so frustrating how people can look at one picture and just you know make the the biggest claim in the world on it you know the the, the story about the mount you know uh, i got to hear the whole story because i went to your taxidermist and actually picked mel up for you mm-hmm you did, um, you did, uh, I believe, a, was it a, is it a sneak form with the lips curled um, up? Or what? It, what is that form? I can't remember what, um, what actual mount position that was. Well, actually, Eric Kibler, my taxidermist, who is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. He actually, cust- he, he'll buy a form, but then, like, for Smokey and Mel both, he custom shaped them forms. Like yep. he'll cut a wedge out of their neck to turn yep. them more. That's where I was. Active. That's where I was going with this because when he did that base mount, he didn't like it, and he took it back apart, and actually moved his nose. Was it down or up? I think he moved it up to where you could get a better profile picture of it because he wasn't happy with it. He actually tore that thing back down apart a, a just to, uh, you know, try to show a, an angle that was a little bit better than what that standard form was. So I got to hear all about that when I picked it up. It was really cool. Well, there is no doubt that Eric Kibler is the guy to take your giant deer to because uh, each one that comes out of his shop is a masterpiece. I mean, he, he does whatever he can to make that deer look as lifelike as possible and also to show him, show off his rack the best possible. And, you know, he's a guy I'll just take a deer to and say, you pick out the form. I mean, you know what's going to make this rack look the best and make him look the biggest and show him off the best. Just just run with it. And, well, you know, I don't try to tie his hands. I just let him run. In the spirit of all of the... Oh, how do I say this? Um, in the spirit of all of the 
celebrity hunters that whore out everything to their name for a sponsor, you're just basically talking about Kibler as a as a customer. You you got to pay for it. You're just he does awesome work. I mean, I've been in his shop a whole lot of times, and it just is phenomenal what he does. And kudos to him. He's just a he's a he's a world class taxidermist, and we don't mind talking about somebody that does that great of a job. And he doesn't give me a break on price, and I don't expect him to. He yeah. just uh, – it's like the products that we use, Terry. We're going to use the best products we can find, no matter if that's our – if they're paying us or not. Yep. Um, if they are great, we're going to plug them at every opportunity, but we're going to be using the best thing that we can find. But we don't mind talking about a guy that, that puts his heart and his soul into a mount like this. So that that's the first comment I have about, about Mel. The second one is um, you had the chance to shoot him at two – you know you have both sheds. He was, he was right at 216 non-typical, but he had a lot of garbage and trash, right? So, yep. so waiting that extra year and him losing a lot of that trash and becoming more of a typical frame – Look what that did. You, you've now got a top six of all-time typical frame buck. Just unbelievable story. Yeah, and, you know, I, I get a lot of people, a lot of comments I've seen on social media, what would he have done if you'd have let him go another year or two? Well, my guess is that he, he would have probably never had a more typical rack than what he had. Yeah. Uh, the older he got, the more trash I think he would have had on his rack, and because even his yearling stuff was starting to show sign of that, and and he was probably going to end up being pretty gnarly the older he got, and he could have blown up another forty inches. He could have gone backwards. Never know. Yep. Yeah, and it really doesn't matter. I'm really happy with him as he is, and made the decision to shoot him before season even opened. And if he wasn't broke up, and that's exactly what happened, and you know, I just consider it a blessing that. Uh, God allowed me to shoot him. But it's just another testament to something paying off. This was a this was a strategic decision that you stressed about it. Uh, you know, we we don't try to, to sway your opinion. Those of us in inside your circle that knew the story from when he was a yearling and you know, I never once told you what I would do. You know, it's 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 your decision and we just try to be supportive of it, but it's gotta feel good when it not only happens, but then something plays out like this, that especially the only buck bigger than him is the one that you named him after. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I wasn't expecting that. Uh, um, I didn't realize how few bow killed typicals there were over 200 inches. And I think Mel Johnson is, is one is the only one in the record book at this point. Um, my buddy Cameron Coble pointed out another one that has apparently not been entered into the record book, or I'm not sure what happened, but it's not there now. If it does get entered, it'll bump mine down to number seven, which no big deal. But uh, they're just that. There's only two bow killed typicals over 200 inches. What What did uh, Mel Johnson's buck score? Uh, 204 and 48. Wow. Wow. Yep. Absolutely amazing. Well, I'm I'm happy for you. That's kind of the the last uh kind of the last stop or the last chapter of Mel. 
um, that we know that we're going to be talking about, but just an absolute cool school story when he dried out, you, uh, you took him and, and most of all having your buddies, Joe and, and Alan there had to be pretty special too. Yeah, it was, you know, those guys, uh, they hear all my deer stories as the you, Terry, and, and, uh, they know the bucks that I'm after before I ever shoot them. And, and a lot of times they know about them years before I shoot them and, um, just good to have them along. Yeah, they're super great guys. I enjoyed having them down here for turkey season, so can't wait for uh, them to be back next year and, and try to go after one. Um, there's one other update that we need to talk about, and you got a phone call from our buddy Chris Yates this week. Yeah, I did. I talked to Chris, and uh, it won't be long. You and me will be driving new Chevys. Yeah, we, uh, we've been in limbo for quite a few months as uh, the manufacturers are, are trying to deal with this missing chip or shortage of chips if you drive by the kentucky speedway uh, down i-71 in kentucky is all of the lots from the nascar track are filled with ford trucks because the assembly plant's there in louisville just down the road so i think they're they're actually renting the entire parking facility of the kentucky speedway to store these trucks until these chips are available so it's been an unbelievable thing but uh you know, uh, we, we've talked about it on and off. Even through the shortage of trucks, uh, Chris is still offering this deal that we've talked about on the podcast. So um, um, I'll, uh, I'll I'll give Chris his phone number, or if you want to message us, that's probably better. If you got a question, just message Don or I. We can give you Chris's uh, personal number. But the, the deal with Chris is if you buy a diesel truck from, from Chris at Victory Chevrolet, um, he will take that truck back and trade you a new one every year for five grand. And when you and I are as busy as what we are, not to have to deal with maintenance and tires and all that kind of jazz, it was just too good of a deal for us to pass up. Yeah, right. And uh, the thing about it is, is Chris is a great guy too. He's a, he's a Christian man. His word is good as gold. And, you know, when we first talked about this deal, everybody was saying, what's the catch? There's got to be a catch. Even I told uh, you that. <laughs> Even yeah. I told you that. Well, the only catch is the, the mile limit. Um, what is it, 25,000 or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think so. But, uh, but you know what? If, if you get to 25,000 miles, eight, ten months in, whatever, just trade it in early. Yeah. Um, it's not a lease. You own, he, you own the vehicle. It's not a lease. Yeah, you own it. And uh, – Every time you, you get to 25,000 miles, call Chris, say, I'm ready for my next one. Yep. Give him a little bit of time and to, to get it in. But, uh, well, I want to, I, mean, I, I you just, you mentioned, you mentioned Chris having a great deal on a truck, but, you know, Chris has been very supportive of the Lester's feet and the, the rifle we're doing. Uh, Chris is, is, uh, he doesn't brag about it, probably doesn't even want it known. I hope he doesn't mind, but, Chris does all kinds of mission and community work in his community with soup kitchens and meals for the homeless and, and does all kinds of stuff. And Chris has actually stepped up. And as we're starting to meet these families that need help, uh, Chris, uh, through Lester's feet, Chris has basically just said, you know, until the rifle goes, 
you know, his, his business doesn't really have a hunting product to donate for the raffle, but, you know, he's offered to come in and go ahead and fund uh, situations that we need immediate financial commitment to. So um, Chris, is, Chris has become a very good friend of both of us and uh, just can't thank him enough for the support, not only to the podcast, but uh, most of all, just in outreach and helping others and obviously his support of the Lester's Feet Foundation. It's, it's been a true blessing to get to know him. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of Lester's feet, do you have any updates this week, Terry, or still just uh, selling raffle tickets? Uh, yeah, we're selling raffle tickets uh, for all of our Amish friends. Uh, we've been getting a lot of phone calls this week. Um, the ad for the – we actually uh, partnered with the Busy Beaver, which is a publication that goes out to um, our Amish community and their friends. Uh, we we were able to get a full page uh, kind of a ad or announcement, I guess you would say, in uh, that publication um, with a tear off for all of our Amish friends. And um, a lot of people are uh, calling, asking questions. You know, they might not even listen to our podcast, but they're, uh, you know, wanting to know more about, you know, this uh, mission that we're doing and um, just, it's been really cool to talk to so many people, but, uh, yeah, if you're listening to this on MTech or the other, um, the other channel that we, uh, spoke about, um, the last two weeks, uh, look at the busy beaver extreme and, uh, there's actually a, a one page flyer in there with a tear off where you can mail in a, uh, a check for some tickets, or you can go to SC online sales and uh, buy tickets there. We're going to be drawing the raffle tickets um, on July 4th episode, so we look forward to that. It's also going to be on uh, Deer and Deer Hunting, and Iowa Sportsmen are both having uh, an ad in there, so those publications have stepped up and, and really uh, been supportive of us also. Oh, great deal. You know, uh, speaking of the Amish, uh, I, I pulled out a property of the, of the week segment uh, or property to feature this week on the biofarm featured property segment just for our Amish listeners. Well, I think that's a good tee up to our biofarm.com property of the week. Biofarm.com is your source for farm, recreational properties, rural homes, and more. Now here is Don Higgins with this week's featured property. You know, after 66 episodes of this, we almost work together and know what's coming next, don't we? (laughs) (laughs) Seems that way. (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, this week's property of the week is 24 acres in Saline County, Illinois, and this is an Amish homestead that has two homes on it. Um, Home number one is a two-story home with four bedrooms. It's got a large family room, kitchen area, uh, outside toilet. The home has no electricity or plumbing. Uh, home number two is a modular home, so it would have uh, some more of those modern conveniences. Uh, there's also a 40 by 60 pole barn, uh, 20 by 20 um, two-story utility building, pond, pasture, some tillable acres. Uh, it's got a good water well on it. Uh, it's priced reasonable. I mean, most of the time we don't even uh, – mentioned prices on this podcast but but this 24 acre homestead with two homes on it is only listed at a hundred and twenty five thousand dollars wow the reason i picked this out is i know we got a a lot of amish listeners and i know sometimes uh these amish families especially young families will branch out into new areas and start new communities 
And, um, you know, if, if any of these, any Amish listener, anybody really is, you're just not going to find a, a homestead with 24 acres and two homes on it, uh, for $125,000. Impossible. Um, so that's why I, I picked this one out to feature this week. Uh, any of you um, listeners that are interested, you can certainly go to buyafarm.com and see pictures and details. Uh, but the agent that you would want to call is Shirley Bailey. And Shirley's phone number is 618-919-1010. Um, again, 618-919-1010. And I'm sure she'd be glad to show you this. Just tell her you're looking at the, uh, you're interested in a 24 acre Amish homestead in Saline County, Illinois. Yep. And hey, if you're not Amish, you could always put your mother in law in the house that didn't have electric <laughs> or plumbing. <laughs> that might cause some problems, though. Might. Never know. Depends, <laughs> depends on the relationship with your mother in law. Yeah. So, uh, I, I do, uh, before we go on to the, um, with the listener submitted questions, I do owe everybody a, a quick apology, um, on, on behalf of myself, but Don and myself, um, uh, we, we did have some changes in how we produce the show. And I know a lot of our listeners have listened to this podcast on YouTube and it's been, I think we're missing like four or five episodes on there. And that's because of, um, how we're producing the show a little bit differently now. Um, we will have those back up and those missing episodes back up this week. So if you're if you're listening to it on um, Tech or, or those, nothing has changed. But the guys that and gals that were listening to it on YouTube, that service will be back uh, later this week. So um, our apologies on that. It was just a little stumbling block that we have as we navigate you know, growth of the podcast. So, um, appreciate everybody's patience there. Yeah, for sure. We're just trying to get bigger and better. And sometimes there's growing pains. This is one of them and we're getting it solved. So, right. so you got some questions for us today? I do. Um, again, I'm all over the board with these questions and some of them were submitted some time ago and some of them more recently. But, uh, right. the first one comes from Tim Henrich from Sioux Center, Iowa. Uh, Tim says, Hey, I absolutely love the podcast and look forward to each episode. My question is regarding minerals. I hunt a small 35-acre, mostly wooded property. Should I use the maximizer minerals at a stand site to attract deer or in a bedding area such as a thicket? In your experience, will more deer use the minerals in a remote location or in the open woods? Thanks again for what you do, and God bless. Uh, well, Tim, uh, we're not allowed to use mineral here in my home state of Illinois. However, um, you know, I have the property in, in Ohio, which I recently just sold, but uh, I've had it for the last couple of years uh, where minerals have certainly been legal. Um, hunt other states uh, where they're legal outside of hunting season. So I've used them to, uh, to get photos and also uh, for the management, especially on that Ohio property. I, I like to put mineral basically where it's easy to get to, where I can, uh, you know, access that mineral lick without putting a lot of pressure on the property, field edges, um, just inside the wood, something like that. Um, the main reason for it is, is I like to put cameras on those as well. 
and uh, those easy to access locations uh, just makes it a, you're putting a whole lot less pressure um, on your property. So that's where I would suggest you do it. Easy to access locations where you're going to put minimal pressure. It doesn't matter if the deer hit it at night. You know, if it's a more open area and they hit it at night, that's not a big deal because they will hit it. That's when they're active anyway. Um, they're likely to hit just about any mineral like more at night than they are during the day. So just keep it in easy to access locations where you can keep your human intrusion down. Yeah, I think a lot of people try to overcomplicate mineral and confuse it with attractant. We're going to have some good um, good information coming out in the near future that we're going to be sharing uh, about that more specifically. But think about it this way. If you're using a quality mineral, when is the, well, you're, I'll just ask you, when is the peak season for mineral consumption? Well, right now, actually, from, uh, well, it probably started 60 days ago. Right. You know, like in March. And, and it'll go through around to the end of the summer. Right. So everybody wants to put their, you know, oh, I'm going to go in and put a mineral site right underneath my tree stand. Um, they're not even using mineral during, <laughs> for the most part, during that time of the year. So I think that's uh, that's a little bit of a misconception. But I do think that there is a balance. You know, I was I was actually the first. Was I? Correct me if I'm wrong. Was I the first one to use Maximizer in the wild? Yeah, first, you and Patrick, yeah. because uh, we weren't able to use it in Illinois. Yeah, so, so uh, we got the first kind of beta sites of these, this mineral as it was coming through. And um, um, But I think I think uh, when you find the sweet spot for a mineral site, it's a place you can get to that you don't have to worry about bumping up a deer. In other words, you put it way inside the woods, there's always a chance you're going to bump them. Um, I've seen a lot of trail camera pictures in the middle of the summer with deer using mineral during the middle of the day. So I don't want to do that, but I do think that just putting it out in the middle of an open area doesn't, doesn't play as well either. I think you want to find something that's a kind of a natural corridor, a natural shelf, a natural pinch point that you can get to very easily without getting close and and putting a lot of intrusion on. And, uh, when you put it out, put it out the same way all the time, you know, they, they know you're there. Um, you know, I would, I, I just, I, I really encourage you not to put it way deep into some place where you could potentially jump something up, but also put it a little bit more strategically where you're going to get deer traffic. I think that's also important. Yep. For sure. All right. We'll move on to the next question comes from Brad Hemeyer. I hope I said your name right, Brad, from uh, Gilliam, Missouri. Uh, Brad's actually got several questions in here, so I think I'm going to stop at the end of each question after his introduction here. Makes sense. And just make it easier. So uh, Brad says, hello, Don and Terry. Love the podcast. You guys truly have the voice for radio. Does that mean we don't? That means I don't have the appearance for TV, I guess. (laughs) Uh, I think that was an underhanded (laughs) insult or underhanded compliment that was really an insult, but either way thank you he was just joking yep um says i purchased a 120 acre farm seven years ago with the intentions of hunting and farming the farm is approximately two-third crop with the remainder in timber and draws since the purchase i have completed a timber harvest and tsi uh for those listeners that don't know what tsi is that's timber stand improvement 
Uh, it seems this farm really doesn't hold deer and especially mature bucks, even though I know there are plenty in the area. I don't put much pressure on the ground as I rarely hunt it due to the lack of good buck pictures. I'm planning on adding to the cover by adding 20 acres of CRP this season. My questions are, first question, the timber is difficult to walk through with the treetops, TSI, and increase in multiflora rows. Should I cut spray paths to the timber for deer movement? Um, yes, but very selectively. I would only cut, I would cut the paths to enhance your tree stands around the edge. So in other words, you want those deer as they exit that thick cover to exit right past your tree stands. So I, I would cut those paths so they deer but I would only do it one time. In other words, don't go in every year with a bush hog mower or something and mow these paths. You know, I would cut them and get them a, and stay out from that point forward. The deer will keep up, keep you. Once you, once you start, they will keep, they will fill in, you know, with weeds and briars, whatever, but the deer will continue to use them. So I would do that. I would uh, make some paths. Anything you want to add there, Terry, before I move on to the next question? Um, can I ask a clarifying question? And maybe I'm sure. maybe I'm overthinking it. Uh, you've given the tip uh, quite a few times about using, say it's and it's not multiflora rows, but uh, if you have like a, a a tall weeded area, you go in with a pump sprayer and Roundup, and you just kill, thinking that the deer like uh, you know structure on on the side of them, and they use that. Um. Mm-hmm. And I know you've also talked about bush hogging big paths through your switchgrass, thinking that they would use that as a corridor. Um, is there a rule of thumb or any insight to how wide of a path? So if I got a jungle of multiflora rows and I'm going in with a chainsaw and cutting a deer path, is there a rule of thumb of keeping it real tight, keeping it wide, what I want to do there? I would only make it as wide as need be to walk down it. Um, I'm thinking as far as him clearing the path, it's the, it's the treetops and such that he may need to take a chainsaw and, and, you know, cut some of the the brush away and up through those treetops or use a skid loader and just kind of shove the treetops to the side and make a path. And then you, you bring up a very good point, Terry, with the herbicide, you know, once you get that path cleared where you can easily walk through it, um, let it green up in the spring, you know, about this time of the year when it's not fully um, you know, growed up like it will be later in the summer and, and go in this time of the year with a herbicide, um, walk right down the path and spray it open that way and, and do it one time and, and, and then leave it. Um, you know, Terry, a good example of this is, uh, you know, on, on my property, when we did the master class this year, the one 360 hunting blind that's way back, uh, you cut across my neighbor's field to get to it down the waterway. It would be the one to the far west. Yep. And there was briars and such in front of that that blind, and a lot of the deer traffic was behind the blind. Yeah, they were skirting well, behind went, the blind. Yeah, so I went in there with my mower last summer, and I I just told the you know all the students don't use the mower because a lot of times <laughs> the deer won't use them, or, or the bigger bucks won't use them, the more mature older bucks. But I went in last summer and just to establish that travel route through those briars, I just put my mower down 
and mowed right through their six foot wide path. And then I let the grasses and stuff start growing back. And when we did the master class, you could see, you know, the deer were clearly using that mowed path. Um, well, today that is all grown back um, with grasses. You can't even see where I had mowed like you could earlier. Mm. However, where I had mowed a year ago, there is a beat down mud path right where it had been all along. So, so their pattern stayed the same, even though it came back. Right. Once you get them, once you get them traveling a certain route, they will continue to do so. You don't need to keep going back and mowing and spraying in the future. Get them using it. Uh, another one is that that creek crossing that I created a couple of years ago, right by the other 360 blind. Right. You know where I use this the. the uh, spray on both sides of the creek uh through the weeds and, and created a crossing for them well that crossing you ought to see it today it's just beat down mud on both sides it looks like they're using it now more than they ever did and that was one that i, I did one time i sprayed it one time to create it and got the deer started to use it once you get them started doing something they'll continue to do it you don't need to continue to go in there and and keep those paths open they'll continue to use it you know, I don't want to get too off topic on Brad's question here, but I think it's a relevant point. You know, one of the things that I've struggled with at the lease in Illinois is it's so thick. You know, we've talked about that property a little bit and all the multi-floor rows there. And, you know, we have food plots in the in, in certain areas. But, um, you know, the only way to get to and fro uh, the food plots is these open lanes. And, of course, the deer also use those. And, uh, you know, um, our, our friend Kyle Harmon has a, uh, fecon, uh, mulching head on the front of a skid loader. And he went in this winter and actually came from the parking spots or from the neighbor's field, uh, where corn and beans are and cut a path with that fecon head, uh, into the back of my blind instead of me having to walk the open lane. And I've always struggled a little bit with it. You know, you want to clear a path to get you in and out where you um, try to be. And when I was a younger hunter, that was always the core of the property or the backside. Everybody wants to race to the back corner of their property. But as I've gotten a little bit more experienced in this, I've learned to pull back a little bit. And I I try to keep my path and my access completely away from where the, the deer bedding at. So... I think whether we're creating a path for the deer to use or we're creating a path for um, us to get in and out of uh, blinds or tree stands, you know, I'm going to have the new 367 by 7 sitting in that place uh, this coming season. So I think people need to use a little bit. It's not as much about how I make the path or how wide it is. It's strategically laying it out to where, the ones that I'm on aren't connecting a bedding area and I'm not too deep into the property. The ones the deer are on, I'm strategically trying to push them in a certain area to where they're huntable. Well said. Yep, that's perfect. All right. Well, he had other questions. I didn't want to get off on too big of a tangent on yep. that. He's got at least a couple more. So right. uh, next he says, I'm thinking about taking out a five-acre field from production to put into food plots. What would be a good combination to add along with soybeans to the plot? Do you recommend adding switchgrass along the edges? Um, diversity in a food plot program is, is critical. Um, you, you say you're going to plant soybeans, so that takes care of your grain. I, I'd be looking for some greens. Uh, Deadly Dozen is by far my favorite. 
Um, gives you a lot of diversity with the 12 plant species in that mix. So uh, to be honest, I would probably put the entire five-acre plot in, into soybeans um, in the spring. And then uh, you got browse pressure around the edges or whatever, go in in the fall and uh, maybe disc up uh, one pass around the edge of that plot and uh, put your deadly dozen there. You ask about adding switchgrass along the edges. Um, I'm not a big fan of using switchgrass for uh, screening simply because I think miscanthus is so much better. It's twice as tall, stands better. Um, switchgrass in a narrow uh, strip like that, uh, what's growing along the edge is going to kind of lay over a little bit. Uh, in, in the middle, it'll kind of hold its uh, it structures hold itself. itself. Clumps. Yeah, it provides its own structure when it's with a bunch of it. Right. Um, but Miscanthus, hands down, you can plant a, a narrower strip and do better job screening. So if I was going to do anything, I would use Miscanthus. So you know, I was, that I was watching uh, Kevin Thayer respond to some some people on one of his comments uh, or posts and somebody was saying use switchgrass as a screen and he made a really good point about it you know miscanthus you can put three maybe five rows in and have it really narrow but thick and tall the variety that we chose for this it's it's the thickest bushiest plant we could find whereas to get that same uh, line of sight visual that in switchgrass you'd have to be a wider path than that and and Kevin's point was why do I want to put something that's a screen that I might be using to walk in that the deer are going to bed in yep so uh, I, I we, we hadn't ever really talked about that but um yeah as far as your question I mean it's with him being in Missouri He's going to be even more in the same situation that I am and down you know, that a little bit further south then say Wisconsin, Minnesota, um, Michigan, New York, um, once it gets later into the season, there's still a lot of really warm days where that green is, is still a really big magnet. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't standardize only on the grain, especially the further south you get. You want a lot of green. That's a great point. Okay, next question from Brad. What is the best, best method for organizing fruit trees? Should they be located in several places on the farm for different tree stand sites, or should they all be together? I like to keep my food sources limited on a property, so but I also want them diverse. I really like to uh, put my fruit trees along the edge of a plot. Um, I just think it adds drawing power to that plot. I will also occasionally plant fruit trees, uh, maybe three or four, near a, a stand site uh, just to enhance the stand site um, but that, that's kind of my uh, approach to, to organizing fruit trees uh, on a property concentrate them near the other food sources don't scatter food everywhere yep. give them choices but only in one location yep okay. uh, next question this is a good one Terry, I may even let you just handle this one. Oh, boy. <laughs> it says, my neighbors have t have dogs, two Great Danes, that I sometimes get pictures of running my farm. Could this be the reason I'm not holding deer? <laughs> Any suggestions on how to improve the problem? <laughs> you want to take a first stab at this? <laughs> uh, 
I love dogs, <laughs> but I don't want them anywhere close to my hunting property. How you deal with it's how you deal with it, but um, they can they can do damage. It's it's intrusion. It's pressure. It's something that's not normal. So, well, if, if there's any <laughs> pressure that's worse than human intrusion on a property of dogs, dogs are the number one worst thing for a deer property, and this is so telling. Because you go back to the beginning of, of Brad's uh, submitted question here. Yep. Says, uh, he doesn't put pressure on his property, but the, it doesn't hold deer, especially mature bucks. And then here, the last question just flat out answers it without a question in my mind. If you do nothing else, Brad, nothing else to your farm, you got to get rid of these dogs. And when I say get rid of them, I'm not suggesting how you get rid of them, but you got to keep them off of your farm. And, uh, I'm just going to leave it there. Yeah. I mean, people are going to argue, well, coyotes, any of it, um, it's not, it's not, it's not helping you. And, and especially great Danes, good grief. They could, they're the size of a deer. Um, yeah. but, but any of them, I mean, uh, we, we all deal with this battle. It comes back down to the problem I have that results back into some of these coon hunters too, running their dogs across your property, not just the dogs, but the people that come behind it. You're paying. He did say he, yeah, he purchased this. You're the one that's paying the property tax. You're the one that's paying the payment. Why is someone's else's lack of respect for your property? Your problem. It, it shouldn't be. So I don't know if you have leash laws. I don't know what your situation is in Missouri, but um, you hate to you hate to be that guy and cause trouble in the neighborhood. But if your goal is to have this property as a big buck sanctuary, it's one of the things you got to deal with. Yeah, I'm just going to leave it. Yeah, right I mean, there. how how you decide to do that, that's your business. I'm a dog lover, but it's still not right for someone to have enough lack of respect they don't keep their dogs on their own property. So, uh, um, so to close, Brad says, "Thanks for answering any questions you can, Brad." PS, I hung up my tree saddle for the last time about 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> we hadn't had a good tree saddle conversation for a while. No, well, we'll just leave that one too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, let's move on to the next submitted question. Comes from Carl Pirro. He's from Buckley, Washington. I think this is the first question we've ever had from Washington. Um, Carl says, "Hi, Don. Great podcast and very informative. Thanks for being so willing to give back to the deer hunting community regarding scent. I know access to a." to a stand is of utmost importance. I have stands set for certain winds, but in order to get to a particular stand for its best wind, I may be jeopardizing another stand because my scent will be blowing in the direction of another bedding area. My question is, while walking into a stand, how far can I expect my scent to travel and still be strong enough to negatively affect another bedding area? If a mature buck is better 200 yards away, will my scent cause him a harm? Thank you, Carl. Well, Carl, one good, or one thing you you mentioned is that access to a stand is of utmost importance. Access is everything. 
Um, but part of access is, is being able to get there without alerting the deer that you're even on the property. Um, you know, some stands just don't have good access. They, they may be a great location for a stand, but, you know, if you was allowed, say, for example, to, to possibly come across your neighbor to get to that stand, well, then it would be a great stand, but instead you're not allowed to cross your neighbor, so you got to go through part of your property to get there, which makes it a terrible stand because of the access. So, you know, a good stand, it's, it's not just location, although location is very important, but it's how you get to that location. And to answer your question, I have no idea. I mean, there's just too many variables as far as to, uh, you know, how far your scent will travel and, and affect deer, um, you know, humidity, uh, wind speed, just all, all kinds of different uh, uh, factors that, that uh, you know, play a part in determining how far your scent's going to carry. Thermals is another one. So uh, I, I just don't take any chances. I don't want my scent to blow in anywhere where there might be deer, <laughs> even if I'm not going to be hunting real close to it to where that uh, scent is blowing in. So that's my answer for that one. How about you, Terry? I think it's just, it's a case by case basis. If it's a, if it's a smell that's not there all the time, that the, the deer is going to, it's, it's an old saying, the deer will pattern you before you pattern them. <laughs> and if it's blowing the wrong direction, they know you're there before you know where they're at. So. Yeah. And, you know, I get into it on a lot of my consulting visits. Uh, you know, some clients want to show me uh, what they think is a great location, but it's got terrible access. And I, I understand the, the desire to have a stand for every wind direction on a property. And when you get to your property to hunt, you want to be able to hunt no matter which way the wind's blowing. But you really got to take what the property gives you. That that takes a special property to have something for everything. It does for sure. Yeah, I, don't, you know, I mean, just look at access. Um, yeah, you know what makes my property so good? I think is that I can access from just about any direction. Yeah. Um, my neighbors allow me to cross their open ag fields once they've been harvested and, and come in from a variety of different directions. So that makes it easy for me to play the wind on my farm. If you know, some of those access points, whatever, to get shut off at some point in the future. Well, there's stands and, and, and blinds on my farm I would probably have to give up. Right. Um, so access is everything. It's um, it's just one of those things that the more, and we talk about discipline a lot, the more disciplined you are to hunt less in the right conditions and not feel like you have to be out there every time you're off work. Um, pays big dividends and and the other thing that you know we we talk a lot about and, and you you mentioned it on a couple podcasts ago about how you didn't even wash your camo you know we're, we're I think people take things a little bit out of context something we're, we're not saying that don't use any scent elimination products or we don't we're saying that none of that matters it might be a little bit extra precaution but don't hang your hat on those type things to hunt the wrong place or access the wrong way. You know, mm -hmm. I, I got um, I got a real good friend of mine, Danny York. I, you've met Danny. 
And yep. this guy is the biggest stickler for scent of anyone that I've ever seen. I mean, but he also hunts the right way. So it, it just, he looks at it as just another level of increasing my chances, but he's not copping out and taking it to the point, well, since I took a shower in, ju- you know, go-go juice or whatever today, and uh, I can go hunt an area that's the wrong wind. So um, it, it really boils down to starting with the foundation of your your spot and your access has to always be the right place. For sure. Yep. Whether you decide to wear your camo into Waffle House and come out smelling like cigarettes and grease or not, that's your opinion. I'm I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> no, and, you know, these scent elimination products, I get asked all the time, does this work, does that work? I, I, I'm guessing they probably all work to some degree. And uh, do they help? Sure. I mean, if a buck, uh, if a product works to to a certain degree where a buck a hundred yards away can't smell you, maybe he still can at 20 yards, but if he's a hundred yards, he can't smell you. Well, yeah, it might, it might help you to get a shot at him. Um, so I, I'm not saying the products like that central elimination products don't work. Um, what I'm saying is that I rely on the wind and, uh, you can't yeah, it work. It's like it's like when you write in I think we were in northeast Ohio or what were we in Shipshawan? I can't remember, but you, you said who uses these products and who's win, been winded. Yeah. Everybody raised their hand because people are relying on a gimmick, a product to change what should be the foundation of their whole plan of when, how, and where to hunt. Your foundation mm-hmm. still has to be a fundamental decision that's made well before the season's over or the season starts, you know, if between February and now. Where's my stand location? Where's the bedding? Where's my food going to be? And what situations do I hunt that? And that's the foundation of taking your hunting game to the next level, not uh, I got this camo or I got this bow or I got this and this and this. It doesn't matter. That foundation needs to be when I'm hunting, how I'm hunting, and when am I hunting based on those conditions. And if you want to add the extra layers of insurance to that, great. But it, it can't be a cop-out. You still you still have to learn how to how to set up the place. For sure. For sure. So, all right. I, I do got a – was that your last question for today? That's it. I do got I got I do got one thing that's pretty cool. I need to tell you. Um, so okay. we at Real World we now have three junior pro staff members. So we've over the years met young kids that are just completely ate up with hunting. And uh, the first one that we uh, we asked to come on board, his name is Hunter Stanley, and he listens to the podcast. But I just found out last night that Hunter, he's a freshman at Williamstown High School in Kentucky. He did his whole science project on EHD and even talked about how CWD was blinding some of the uh, state agencies of what the real issue was. And, I mean, he he completely hit a home run with us. He was going through kind of the talking points with me last night. He not only placed first place in the school and went on to kind of the regionals. He has a uh, Zoom meeting tomorrow. He's in the top three to find out if he wins first place in the state of Kentucky talking about EHD and the whitetail herd. 
So uh, well, that's I, awesome. I thought that was pretty cool. So good luck to Hunter tomorrow and uh, hopefully wins first place. And if nothing else, maybe we can uh, publish his blog on or his science project on our real world blog or even have him on the podcast one night to talk about it. So he, uh, yeah. yeah, he's, he's a good kid and absolutely ate up with deer hunting. He's, he's actually a licensed taxidermist as a freshman in high school. So he's con- convinced his dad to try to raise a couple captive deer to, uh, learn more about them. But, uh, uh, he's a good kid and uh, and putting a lot of effort. So good luck on your science project tomorrow, there, Hunter. <laughs> yeah, that is fantastic. And uh, our other two uh, junior pro staffers would be the young man we met there at the Shipshawana show. Had just a whole series of great questions for yep. us um, when we had the live recording. And then uh, uh, Royce Marks out of uh, Wisconsin. Yep. Um, young man that attended the uh, Whitetail Master Course with his dad, uh, Lloyd Marks. And uh, then I went up and did a consultation on their property and just fantastic people. Yep. Um, but we, we enjoy uh, hearing from these young guys that are, you know, really interested in, in deer outdoors. And uh, When we say they're eight up, these three are eight up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, they're the future of this sport. And, uh, we just enjoy helping them any way we can. Yeah. So, all right. With that, um, I don't have anything else for tonight. The next time we'll uh, be talking will be uh, Memorial Day weekend. So, uh, um, if you got any other questions, um, please get them submitted. We, like we say, we want to we want to make this podcast about what you guys want to talk about. So, for everybody else putting in their food plots, you still got plenty of time in most areas of the country so don't panic plant based on the conditions not the calendar um and um if you uh we we did have the the uh, announcement here this last week or i don't know if we talked about it but we we did run out of regular gen 2 beans at real world but we still have northern and enlist beans so if you still need product um there's a post on real world social media page that has where our dealers commented we do have some dealers that still have them that can ship them to you and then if you want uh, Northern Beans or Enlist Beans, um, uh, contact us through our website. So with that, I don't have anything else. I think that's it for this week, Terry. So right. let's wrap it up. All right. Appreciate everybody. All right. We want to thank our sponsors, uh, Biofarm.com, 360 Hunting Blinds, Victory Chevrolet, WildlifeFarming.com, Quiet Cat, Matthews Archery, Real World Wildlife Products, Vortex Optics, Lone Wolf Tree Stands, and Vengeance Camo. I hope everyone has a great week.